we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm chatting to conservation photographer Doug Gimsey. From the illegal wildlife trade, the black summer bushfires and the plight of the platypus, Doug spends most of his time capturing the Australian environment in crisis. But is conservation photography really all doom and gloom? We go behind the lens with Doug to chat about his favourite images and what advice he has for budding conservation photographers. Doug, thanks so much for being with me today. What is a conservation photographer? Is it about the subject of the photograph? Is it about the way you go about taking the photograph? Or is it about the impact of the photograph? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I think it, it's many things. I think for me, the easiest way to define a conservation photographer is comparing it to what a lot of people might view as a wildlife photographer. So as, as, a, as a great uh, conservation photographer once said, uh, a wildlife photographer might take a photo of a butterfly, whereas a conservation photographer will take a photo of a butterfly with a bulldozer in the background. So for me, a conservation photographer is someone who shows a story and, and really the good ones will show a story or tell a story that not only engages people, and that might be emotionally or intellectually, but also at the end of the day, get them to do something to drive behavior as well. Because I think um, being aware or being concerned about something is really, really important. But if we do nothing, nothing changes. So conservation photography is very much about um, driving change as well. And you've spoken a lot about how powerful wildlife conservation photography can be. Do you think photography has the ability to change our outlook or behaviours when it comes to the natural world? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I, I see wonderful BBC documentaries that were done 10, 20, 30 years ago and we're still doing the dumb same things sometimes. Whereas other times you'll see images drive people into action as well and, and people will, will look at a um, you know, the, the bushfires is, is probably a, a great example where around the world, you know, millions and millions of dollars flowed in because people saw an impact to the environment, which was a conservation impact and also an animal welfare impact. So I think it depends. And I think it also depends what else is on the radar and what other people are distracted by at the time. But a, a good image should be able to move the heart. And therefore, if you can move the heart, you can change behavior, hopefully. You've done a lot of photography work on the grey-headed flying fox. Now, they don't have the best reputation. <laughs> People see them as a pest species, particularly in urban environments. What attracts you to them as a photography and conservation subject? Um, many things. Uh, initially, it was they were really close to home. I mean, my grey-headed flying fox colony in Melbourne that in summer goes to about 50 to 70,000, 
is less than 15 kilometers from my house. So what, what a wonderful, easy way to continue to go there again and again and again. But then on top of that, um, there are urban wildlife. And I've always been fascinated with urban wildlife because it's, it's, it's a nice way that people can get introduced to wildlife. We often think of wildlife as us and them. And I think urban wildlife gives us an opportunity to think of it as, a, I guess, we live with them. But then specifically with the flying foxes, if I could summarise it in a sentence, they're just super cool animals. Um, you know, they're mammals that fly. Um, they can travel 40 to 50 kilometres a night. They're vegetarians, the grey-headed flying foxes, or virtually all flying foxes. If they're hot, they do these really cool belly dips in the water where they get their chests wet and then they'll hang upside down and drink water from that. And that's just them as, a, as an animal. And then as, a, um, as an important ecological uh, animal, they're keystone species. And so about 100 species of plants and trees are reliant on grey-headed flying foxes. So if they went extinct, we would have devastation to many of our forests. And the great thing about them, and another interesting fact is, you know, they can travel long distances. So the grey-headed flying foxes move up and down the east coast of Australia. Uh, last year, one was recorded traveling 2,500 kilometers. And so they will, over a year, move up and down, dispersing seeds, uh, dispersing pollen. You know, we think of bees as important, and they are, they travel about 5Ks. Whereas grey-headed flying fox in the night can, um, increased biodiversity by traveling 40, 50 Ks and over a year, two and a half thousand Ks. So they're vital for the uh, biodiversity and the health of our forests. And especially if you think after the bushfires, we've got this desolate area um, that's been burnt. If a flying fox travels over it, they can poop up to 60,000 seeds in a, in a night. So they're just magnificent from that point. So on their own, they're great. As a keystone species, they're important. And if you've ever seen them close up, they're gorgeous. They are they're sometimes called flying um, sky puppies. They look like little dogs. So they do look they, like sky puppies. They tick all the boxes for me. Just going back to your photography of grey-headed flying foxes, are you conscious of the negativity around them as an animal? And then do you sort of aim to reframe the narrative through your photography when it comes to those animals? I'm conscious that some people are um, not tolerant and... I guess COVID and, and the thoughts of where it could have come from uh, hasn't done much for flying foxes. And uh, probably this year or last year wasn't a great uh, time to launch a uh, children's book by Australian Geographic on grey-headed flying foxes. However, I think images can give them their, their dignity uh, and, and let people look close up to them. A lot of people don't see them close up. So look, I'm, I'm really aware, but I don't specifically go out to make people fall in love with them. But I think most animals, if you get a really nice, good, close look and you learn about them, are all lovable, whether it is insects or spiders or, or flying foxes. But look, probably especially mammals, we like the big eyes and, and we like the furry. Um, so I think it works well, but it's not strategic in as much as I want people specifically to fall in love with them, but I do want people to understand them. And I've found that when people understand anything in life, normally they become more tolerant and maybe even over time they'll fall in love. The 2019-2020 Black Summer bushfires were devastating for wildlife. Billions of Australian animals perished, most in horrific circumstances. Doug was there on the front lines capturing the rescue effort. 
what was that period like for a conservation photographer? And with so much going on, how did you sort of choose what subjects you were covering at that time? Um, I didn't really choose. I, I went to regions and I would cover what I what I could and what I was allowed to get into. I was really lucky. I have a, a good relationship with the Department of Environment here and I got a phone call one day saying, there's an Air Force transporter, CJ-27, flying into Malakuta to evacuate people and koalas. Can you be in sail in two hours or three hours? And it's like, yep. And so I, I covered that and then I'd get another phone call where you're going out with the police to send up infrared drones to look for injured wildlife. Would you like to go out? So a lot of it was pretty reactive um, at the time, but I, I had some key photos I knew I wanted, wanted to take, but it was really just being out in the field uh, covering what I could, where I could get to, because in Victoria, especially, there was a lot of limited access um, because of roads being blocked and, and, and occupational health and safety concerns. So, you know, getting through with police and, um, and, and getting access was, was a little bit tough, but it was, I think to the first part of your question, it was, it was tough. I mean, you know, from that, um, I learned a lot about the types of emotional impacts you can have as, as a photographer. And when I'm out in the field, I get very much into, a, I guess, a triage mode and I just do what I do. But when I come back and you're sitting in the office and it's all very quiet and you start looking at the photos, that's, that's when it hits you. And, you know, I have mechanisms in place now. I, I have a psychologist I see to talk about, you know, post-traumatic impacts, um, you know, and there are a whole lot of types of uh, trauma, vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, burnout, compassion fatigue. And, and I, I suffered from vicarious trauma, which is, when you um, get traumatized by seeing other people or in this case animals traumatized so you know I, I was going back to my nice house in Melbourne so I personally wasn't impacted but by seeing the awful impacts on wildlife that sort of knocked me and it was about a week uh, yeah, probably about a week later when I got back and I was just sitting in the quiet of my home you know I had a couple of martinis and just started sobbing uncontrollably for a, a while and went this isn't good and but I now have those mechanisms in place so I think knowing that you're suffering that um, is a good thing because it suddenly as soon as I was diagnosed it was like oh okay that makes sense because I actually felt guilty because I was I was upset I'm going what do I have to be upset about I haven't you know uh, lost my house or my dog hasn't burnt to death and I was feeling really bad about feeling bad so um, that was uh, I guess emotionally one of the toughest things for me. I just want to go back to something you mentioned. You talked about access and that you had a good relationship with the department. Obviously, for budding photographers, that's like a, that will be like one of the, one of the big questions would be, how do you cultivate those relationships and how do you cultivate that access? Like, how have you done that over the years? Yeah, I, I've I've deliberately um, started out by trying to be generous and kind. Um, uh, with people, I mean these these relationships have taken me three, four, five years to get. Uh, but for me, I've I've virtually always done the if you help me out, I'll give you my images for free to those who I photograph. So whether that's wildlife carers or or DELP, um, and I guess it's just trying to be a good person and not not sort of be sneaky or tricky and. And, and mess people about just being really candid about what you're going to do with photos, what you're not going to do. So I think being being genuine. But the other thing I, I mentioned the, the, about grey-headed flying foxes working close to home, for me, if I had a tip, it would be work close to home because you, you're not just going in for a week or two weeks and then coming out. 
you can go back again and again and build those relationships literally over over years you bump into them at conferences uh, um, so for example a, a nice case in point i was doing work on um, platypuses and the person who helped me get into the malakuta bushfires had been um, seconded to cover the bushfires in malakuta from melbourne and that's the lady who rang me up and said hey I can get you in and then I got to know other people and and so it's just you know take your time and, and just build relationships and it's not only with forestry officers it's it's building relationships with with photo editors and and, and magazines you know I, I remember when I first started out years ago uh, and I'm sure um, this happens a lot couldn't even get a reply from most wildlife conservation magazines because I, I realized that people are bombarded but once you get the relationships, it's much easier to, to pick up the phone. Um, I think the other thing is enter competitions, which uh, is really, really important because people then get to know you and get to see you. And then if you do well in a competition, you make the finals. You know, if you make the finals of the Australian Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year, go to the uh, ceremony when when you can, when it's when it's on, because you get to meet other photographers, you know, you get to meet the... the um, the managing editor of Australian Geographic or the CEO or the, the head of BBC, if you do well in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year, and it's building relationships over years. In your opinion, what's your best image or favourite image? Oh, man, that is a, that is a, that's, who's your, who's your favourite child, Angela? I mean, <laughs> really, that's a, that, that is a tough one. Um, I think my best image um, would be one that actually won a category in Australian Geographic uh, Nature Photographer of the Year. I think it was in 2016, maybe, um, which was of a kangaroo at night next to the road that had been hit by a car. Uh, there was a speed sign and there was the tail um, lights of a car going past. And the reason that's my favourite, because for me, if you can tell a whole conservation or animal welfare story in one image you've done a great job and to me that said night driving car speed wildlife trauma in one image and so I think that's my best image but then on the other side um, so if we take a grey-headed flying fox uh, images I've got one of a grey-headed flying fox carrying its baby mid-flight you can see the beautiful structure of its wings the baby's hanging on to the nipple and when I've shown that to to people they go oh my god I didn't realize that they carried their young I didn't even know they were mammals so that's probably my other favorite one mm. I have to say one of my absolute favorites of your images was the um I think it was in the or a finalist in the our impact category and it was all the flying foxes like coming down on the tree and there was kind of like a huge group of them and they were just staring at the camera mm. and it's me that was a really powerful image and it got me thinking how do conservation photographers like yourself go about photographing or telling stories of climate change like one of the biggest the biggest issue of our time yeah and that that is that is really really hard and and that would have been my third favorite photo if um if if uh, i thought about it um it, it is hard because climate change can be slow and there are the classics, polar bear and an iceberg or drought. But for me, heat stress events, which is the photo you're describing, is, is, a, is a really good way to show it. We had a third of the spectacled flying fox population die in a week two or three years ago due to heat stress events. 
which is just just terrific. So showing those awful heat stress events, I think, because sometimes when people think climate change, they're thinking more bushfires or drought, but a lot of animals die due to heat stress, but it's, it is tough to show something that slowly impacts us over time uh, in, in a single image. I guess it's a little bit like, um, you know, cancer. It, 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 can, it can develop over a long period of time, but it's only when you get to the palliative care funeral photo that you sort of go, well, that's the impact, but it, it's hard. And I, I think when you get to the end, showing dead animals is important, but I'm glad you like that photo because showing animals under stress to me is more important because I think most conservation, and I'd say nearly all conservation issues are animal welfare issues. And it's only recently we've started to look at it that way and the, and the, the communication has started to talk about it that way. And, and the bushfires is a really good example where normally if you have a bushfire, people will talk about there was a million hectares destroyed or and, and 12 houses. But in, in the 2019-20 bushfires, people started talking about a billion animals died. I think the conversation could have got broader where you go a million animals burnt to death and probably, sorry, a billion, and probably another billion who are suffering horrific injuries. But I, I think uh, when you show the um, animal welfare impacts as well, I think that's, that's really, really important because that engages people more. And, and I, I think how we communicate about these is important. So that uh, image I was talking about with the kangaroo, um, I don't call it, I don't call anything roadkill anymore. I call it road trauma, and that frame is really important to me because we know that 50% of all animals hit by cars don't die straight away. They will either fly off or jump off into the bush to die these slow, horrible deaths, or they'll live maimed. And then the person who hits the animal is probably traumatised. And I know the wildlife carers who might have to euthanise or look after them are traumatised. So I think those type of framings of calling them a rogue trauma is, is really important way to get people engaged. So it's just not the images, it's the, the words and the communication we put around it. it does change its meaning. Um, I think, uh, Angela, you know, I've, I've, I've always jumped on when anyone uses the term habitat loss. I just hate that because, you know, if someone says we're losing the Great Barrier Reef, I go, well, I can give you the coordinates. We're not losing it. And, you know, it's not like you've lost your car keys. We're destroying it or we're allowing it to be destroyed. And that's a very different moral framework. If, if, if I lent someone my camera and they said I lost it, of course I would be annoyed. But if, I, if they said, came back and said, Doug, I destroyed it, I'd go, well, well hang on, what did you do? And, and there would be a moral responsibility put on that. So I think the words that go with the images are important. So I spend a lot of time thinking about my captions uh, as well, which is something I have tips for, for budding conservation photographers. I can spend weeks thinking about a caption. I mean, I don't sit quietly in my room and just think about a caption, but as I'm out in the field, I, I will think, oh, is that a good caption? Oh, you know, maybe maybe I'll change that to, you know, I think the the, the one that I did in this year's um, Australian Geographic um, our impact that won that category, you know, bound, jammed inside and posted. It's not the most elegant title, but it does nicely talk about what's happened to this reptile to do with illegal wildlife trade. It was bound, jammed inside and posted. And that's, that's you know, that's important. I could have called it something simple like illegal wildlife trade, but that to me doesn't engage emotions as much. Just on the topic of that photo, obviously, um, a lot of your images tell these really harrowing wildlife conservation stories. I'm wondering, 
is conservation photography also all sort of like doom and gloom or is there value in telling positive conservation stories too? Absolutely. Look, a lot, a lot of the stuff I get drawn to, or maybe it's my personality type, it, it starts off as, um, as, as, as gloom and doom. But you'll find that probably 40 to 50% of all my photos have images of people and those images are of people doing good stuff because whilst virtually every conservation and animal welfare issue is caused by humans, all of them are fixed by humans, so, you know, something I've been working on for a while is a series called Conservation Champions, Wildlife Warriors and Animal Advocates, and it shows people doing good things. So if you look at my, my bushfire photos, whilst there's horrific, uh, well, I, think I hope they're good photos, but while they show horrific uh, images of, of bushfire impact, you'll see um, a, a forest and wildlife officer holding a koala bear in the back of a uh, Air Force transport flying it out of Malakuta. And to me, that's an image of hope. You know, if the Air Force is going to fly six koalas out of Malakuta and take them to, to Hillsville Sanctuary in Melbourne, that's that's a really positive story because it shows the lengths people will go to to help and make a difference. So I think a lot of my stuff shows the negative of what's happening, but I would hope at least 40, 50, 60% shows people doing great things to make a difference because I think that's important as well. Is there a wildlife conservation story that you haven't yet photographed that you really want to photograph? Not that I can think of. And the, the reason is, and there will be, um, a lot of my stories fall out. It's whilst, whilst I can spend two or three years on them and they end up being quite strategic, I will find out about something and go, good heavens, I didn't know that. So come, coming back to the R impact image of bound, jammed inside and posted, a, a forest and wildlife officer said, look, we're going to pick up this parcel. It's been intercepted by Australia Post. We think it has wildlife in it. That was two and a half years ago. And I'm still working, working on that. So for me, um, they're the ones that are unknown about. And so I, I don't know about them as yet, but you know, next week I might. Um, I'm doing a small little story on uh, detection dogs, you know, the ones that might go to um, wind farms and, and look for bats that might have been hit by the blades or uh, this one, this dog I know has been trained to sniff out invasive seaweed. So he's on the front of a kayak going up and down um, the coast or as someone paddles. I only found out about that last week. So in about three weeks or four weeks, whenever Melbourne gets out of lockdown, um, I'll be going covering that. But a month ago, had no idea. So it is, it's not, they're not spontaneous in the production, but they generally are spontaneous in the, wow, that's really interesting. I think I'll see if I can cover that over a period of time. And having done so many wildlife conservation stories, um, and interacted with, you know, the the environment department and all all these different sort of um, wildlife conservation workers. What's one thing that you've sort of learned, or that you think is really important that you've learned about wildlife conservation in Australia? Well, generally, um, we do a poor job. Uh, we have the highest uh, mammal extinction rate in the world, and. Uh, there's a lot of people who care and are trying to make a difference, but there still seems to be a strong tide in Australia where we're a little bit reluctant to, to make the hard decisions. And that's a very broad generalisation. There are some departments that are fantastic. There are many individuals 
that are fantastic, but it just seems there's a, uh, it's always jobs and growth that seem to uh, trump uh, everything, unfortunately. So um, that's been uh, not really an epiphany. I've, I've been as uh, a zoologist or graduated as a zoologist over 30 years ago. So it's, it's not a surprise. It's just disappointing how long and how slow the change has been for, for Australia as a nation to go, okay, we really need to tackle climate change. We nearly need to tackle uh, species extinction and do it seriously and, and quickly. I think one of the challenges is coming back to how we frame things. We need to start talking about these issues in days, not years. If, if we talk about 2030, that's sure, that's close to, to 10, um, 10 years. That's less than three and a half thousand days. You know, 20, 2050 is, you know, we'll round it up to 30 years. That's, you know, less than, I can't do the maths, 10,000 days is a. I should, I should have done the maths beforehand, but you know, we need to start talking. We need to start talking days, not not years. Um, mm. I think. Mm, for sure. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Doug. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to talk all things conservation and wildlife and, and flying foxes. That's it for this week's episode of Talking Australia with Doug Gimsey. If you want to find out more about Australia's grey-headed flying foxes, check out Doug's book, Life Upside Down, available at the Australian Geographic online store. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Hear you next time.